a lot of Alltown guests. Uh, Wes is organizing the March for the Fallen. And so we figured we'd take advantage of the opportunity to interview uh, some of the people here because we have a lot of smart people in the room. So with me today is uh, Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management. Adam, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having us all here at the uh, Alpha Architect headquarters. It's pretty awesome to be here. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for coming. And we do have some upgrades on the mics this week. You know, this was originally in front of our faces. Um, it's like being at NASA, man. Like, yeah, yeah. We're really amping up um, the tech. Yeah. But uh, so real quick for everyone involved, you mind just give me like high level kind of what types of strategies do you guys run and what's your high level thoughts on just investments? Yeah, sure. So we, we typically run um, highly diversified strategies, which typically means we've got to run multi-asset. So um, at the moment, all of our strategies are multi-asset strategies. Um, for about six years now, we've been running purely ETF-oriented strategies. They're fairly active. Uh, we call our approach adaptive asset allocation. And um, uh, we have now... Uh, sort of moved along in the process and the evolution of our business. And for the last few years, we've also been running uh, futures mandates. And the benefit of futures is that you can potentially get more diversified uh, portfolios, more diverse opportunities to generate alpha and to manage risk. Mm -hmm. And also they've got pretty nice tax advantages uh, for U.S. investors as well. So, And on the tax advantages, what are you talking about there? Well, for, for active trading, our strategies tend to be a little bit more active. Mm -hmm. And for if we were to crystallize those active gains using ETFs, a lot of them will be subject to uh, you know, short-term capital gains taxes or short-term taxes. Whereas with futures, uh, all of the gains are crystallized as 60% long-term capital gains or regular income and only 40%. Regardless of how of your frequency of trading, only 40% is uh, taxes as short-term gains. So yeah, and that's due to them being 1256 contracts. Correct. So it makes mm -hmm. sense. And so I guess um, two, two questions. One is, you know, you just talked about uh, clearly futures being more tax efficient. So what's kind of your average like turnover in your portfolio? Um, actually, let, let's start with that one. Yeah, so it can be pretty high. Okay. Um, our ETF mandates, our most active ETF mandates turn over between 600 and 1200% a year or like turnover about six to 12 times a year. Um, and then our less active ones, which we typically run through SMA, are sort of three to six hundred percent a year okay. but it's a little misleading because that turnover happens in fairly small increments so for example and and part of the reason is we One think about everything yes. oh. we have a printer running right now <laughs> we're still going to keep this video live it's a multi we're not room. editing it but yeah, someone printed something while the video. Exactly. Was there's a this right. is a kitchen and a printing room, and can you even see the bear in the background? It's pretty intimidating. Yeah. So, but so so we got interrupted, but we were talking about turnover, and you were mentioning how sometimes it happens at certain times. Well, it's just it's incremental. So what happens? It's kind of like a caterpillar moving along, and uh, you know each of the little legs moves along, and then the you know, it sort of shimmies along. Well, that's the way our portfolios operate too. Because mm -hmm. you do a lot of boosting, a lot of bagging, a lot of resampling. And so the portfolios tend to be fairly stable, but require small changes fairly regularly. So you might have, we might have a portfolio change where we reduce one uh, security by two or 3% and add 1% to another security, add 2% to a different security. Um, and then two or three days later, we'll have a, a similar type of, uh, of rebalance. So it's just a lot of fairly small moves rather than today we're 100% long equities, tomorrow we're 100% long bonds. You know, it's it, it, it just caterpillars along. It's, fairly, yeah. it's continuous. And, and, and now, so the majority of your strategies, correct me if I'm wrong, do they go both long and short? No, no. Actually, most of our strategies are long only. The idea being, especially the sort of, the global adaptive asset allocation type strategies running ETFs. Well, pretty well everything in the portfolio of the investing universe, we expect to have a long-term risk premium. And so even if you're if you're trading, for example, using trend, which we, we use, or momentum, which we use fairly extensively, well, let's say that the, the Sharpe ratio 
for the momentum signal on its own is 0.3 or 0.4, but then the expected Sharpe ratio for the assets, the long only long-term premium has a Sharpe ratio of sort of 0.3, 0.4. Well, if our momentum signal says we should be short, Mm-hmm. But our so so that would have a, a positive point three, but then we're then short the point three that we expect to earn from that long term premium. Our expectancy ends up being zero. So I mean, even in our the strategies where we do have shorts, like our managed future strategy, we do go short. Yeah. But we don't go short financial assets. We don't go short stock indexes or bond indexes because our view is theoretically that. Stocks and bonds should have a long-term premium, and when we're shorting them, even if we're shorting because trend says we should we should be short, that is offset by that long-term positive expectancy on those assets. Gotcha. So it's not worth it. Yeah. So just if you just you know sort of this, so we got uh, Adam Butler from Resolve Asset Management here, and we're just talking about some some of the strategies that you guys run, mm-hmm. um, and so now. Let me, let me go. I think I have three more questions for you just after what we were talking. So one thing is you just mentioned about expected sharp ratio, mm-hmm. right? And you're saying, you know, if the expected sharp ratio is this, how do you guys think about trying to project expected sharp? Is it mainly just looking at the past? And, and if so, how do you guys do that? Well, our preference is to, first of all, we're only thinking about relative sharp ratios. So I think trying to think about what the absolute long-term expected sharp ratio, I think that's a very, very difficult problem. I agree. Because, I mean, for example, typical academic research, um, they generate their T-scores based on a sample that goes back to whatever, 1926 with Fama French data or 1962 or three with CompuStat. And I would argue that even though you've got whatever, several hundred months, several thousand days of data, what you really have are only a handful or maybe a double handful of independent macroeconomic regimes. So your sample size is much closer to maybe five or 10 and, and not the you know, 300 or 12,000 data points that you would typically think of when you, uh, when you have that long a data set. And so that really complicates what the actual standard error is on, on, on that estimate. Yeah, I mean, obviously, trying to measure future sharp ratios is difficult. I think everyone that's ever studied any financial data would agree on that point. So maybe um, a good question for you, which is, you know, and this is, and maybe it's not the same in Canada, but, you know, in the U.S., at some level when, you know, you, you learn about portfolio construction, a lot of times, you know, some times people think about their equity portfolio, especially advisors, right? right? They're going to think about, hey, this is my equity portfolio, and I'm going to do something here. Here's my bond portfolio slash diversifier portfolio. I'm going to mm-hmm. do something here. And you guys kind of think of it more as like an overall portfolio. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is Definitely, yes. Yeah. So how do you try to explain what you're doing and where it fits in to like a, a normal advisor or someone that's saying, hey, I kind of understand what you guys are trying to do. You're trying to optimize on sharp, right? And sharp is just, you know, expect return over standard deviation. Makes sense, right? We have the highest risk adjusted return, yeah. right? But, but how does that fit in then to like an overall portfolio? Because as an advisor, the majority of advisors are like, hey, I got my stock portfolio. I got my bond portfolio. <clears throat> Maybe something else on the bond is diversifiers. So what would you say there? Yeah, so there's there's a few things, right? Number one, many advisors will have a stock and bond portfolio that is A, fairly heavily overweighted in their domestic market, mm-hmm. B, maybe not have um, any allocation to, or at least basically a negligible allocation to uh, markets like emerging market bonds or uh, even emerging market stocks or long-term tips or you know even just regular sort of international uh, stocks and bonds. And okay. so uh, one of the advantages of our strategies is that you gain exposure to a broader variety of for, uh, growth regions uh, around the world and, and asset classes that, that thrive or designed fundamentally to thrive in very different macroeconomic environments, right? If you think about, especially developed market stocks, fundamentally, they're really only designed to do well during periods of extended positive growth shocks 
uh, fairly low inflation and abundant liquidity conditions. So if you don't have those conditions in place, then we probably shouldn't expect our stock portfolio to do well. And that's why we own these, the, the bonds or the diversifiers in the portfolio, right? So we're just adding other diversifiers to the portfolio to make the portfolio a little bit more resilient to a broader range of macroeconomic conditions, like just different economic states of the world. We've seen a variety of these in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Think 2008, think the inflationary growth environment leading up to 2008 where emerging markets and commodities did really well. Um, and then of course the sort of 90s where you had this disinflationary growth boom, right? Where uh, domestic and uh, de international development markets did very, very well. Right. So, so part of it's just let's add more diversity. And then the other thing is sometimes there are good reasons, systematic reasons to want to emphasize the stock portion of the portfolio or the bond portion of the portfolio or other assets like commodities or gold or currencies, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so so is, is part of that like a cross sectional momentum kind of what's trending? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so that absolutely for. for Many of our ETF based models, that is the primary signal that we use. Okay. Um, so that informs that. And so that's why it has to be a fairly short term signal, because, as you know, the momentum signal decays fairly rapidly. It sort of decays over a matter of weeks. And so if you're using a momentum signal, you have to be prepared for there to be a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of turnover if you want to extract the maximum amount from the signal. Um, and so if you if you do have signals that you think you can reliably depend on, to tilt the portfolio toward domestic stocks or toward, toward Asian stocks or toward long-term treasuries or short-term treasuries or toward commodities or gold, mm -hmm. then that ends up being what would typically be called in the institutional space sort of a, a portable alpha strategy where you're just kind of emphasizing certain sectors of the portfolio at certain times using a systematic method that seems to have merit and have produced positive results in the past. Gotcha. It makes sense. So, you know, for anyone that's kind of interested, they should obviously reach out to you to get more details on what you guys do, how it fits into an overall portfolio. But, and, and so I know you guys use a ton of signals, a ton of rules at a high level, right? You're yep. a big fan of diversifying the signals, diversifying of your rules, yep. which I'll say ex ante, I, I'm, I kind of agree with that idea, right? Sometimes that can be possibly difficult to explain to someone as yes. to like why and what. But so I have, I'm going to, I'm going to end our, our little questionnaire here on, on maybe a, a different question, but imagine I said to you that you have to pick one asset class and one rule. And I said for the next 30 years, what would you do given that information set? So I'm taking away all of your, everything that you normally do, which is multiple asset classes, multiple rules. And I'm trying to say, Hey, let's, Let's pretend that we got to do one asset class, one rule. You have any thoughts? I'm putting them on the spot here, by the way. I did not preempt this question. I think if it's one asset class, one rule, I would, I guess I would probably do long-term trend following on global equities. Okay. So you do like equity futures or something equivalent with trend following? Yeah, I mean, depending on the tax status of the client. Equal weight, value weight, how would you? Well, yeah, so this is, I, I was gonna dig into what are you defining as an asset class? Like, can I say, can I can I long-term trend following on global, on a global minimum variance portfolio, right? Like, I, well, that absolutely would be, I think, a really- So we're back to basically your portfolio. Well, I, I could, you know, or if you wanted a, a low beta portfolio, but, but, you know, something I would want it to, I, I don't like market cap. I would, I guess, prefer equal weight over market cap, but I would prefer low beta to equal weight and I would prefer minimum variance to low beta. So, so even with my question, we got back to your, <laughs> your standard portfolio. It doesn't compute. You literally blew my brain up, brain up man. I, Which I is fine. So maybe in the future, we'll re-ask that question and get a different answer. All right. That's all right. Well, great. Adam, thanks for coming on today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Nice having you. Again, we're going through a lot of the guests that we have here today. So today we have Andrew Miller from Miller Financial. Uh, Andrew is a very, very smart, probably smarter than a lot of people, including myself, uh, financial advisor. So Andrew, you maybe just mind giving a little background about yourself. Sure. What you do. Um, 
So our firm works with a lot of uh, individuals, um, kind of from 500,000 in investable assets up to about 10 million in investable assets. Um, we do kind of comprehensive wealth management. So investment management, financial planning, tax preparation, tax planning, uh, do some work with some estates, uh, some trusts. And then we kind of have some legacy businesses where we do uh, business consulting for uh, typically two or three physician medical groups. Um, so we kind of do a whole lot of everything. Yeah. And so, so, and, but you guys are an independent SEC registered investment advisor. Yes. Okay? Yep. Yes. And based out of Indianapolis, Indianapolis. Uh, well, and kind of some cities to the north and east of Indianapolis. Yeah. So, so in, I, I've always thought your practice is really neat just because, you know, I think you guys have an interesting approach on uh, both your portfolio side, I would say a little bit more advanced than, you know, just a standard 60, 40 portfolio. But not only that, you guys, I, I was always intrigued by the fact that you guys do like the whole tax planning, yes. tax preparation. Yep. Right. Um, you mind just talking about that and how that maybe fits into as, as a financial advisor, how the tax piece kind of plays in. Sure. So um, we start from a planning perspective. So that largely drives everything that we do. Uh, we'll sit down and in our investment policy statements, we kind of do a mini financial plan. And then uh, if we're doing financial planning work, that's typically the very first thing that we do. Uh, that helps inform the portfolio construction. Um, but on an ongoing basis, when you're preparing an income tax return, you can kind of see the entire picture of somebody's financial life, and you can pick up on ways that people can do things more tax efficiently, uh, which kind of informs uh, portfolio structure, asset location, uh, the asset classes that are used. Um, and you just try to, in essence, help people live their lives, but from a more tax efficient perspective. Yeah. And so what would maybe be an example? Of, of such a thing you would do? Um, probably one of the most uh, common issues that we see are that um, uh, people will come in with balanced funds, as an example. Um, and the, a balanced fund will be dividend uh, heavy on the equity side. And then they'll also own taxable bonds and a taxable account. But it won't look that way because it just because will ha have a balanced fund. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the potential to add some value there is to really take a look at their goals, restructure the equity side, um, and try to own the more uh, dividend-heavy uh, equity piece in a tax-deferred or a tax-free vehicle, and uh, own the perhaps more growthier side or the momentum side in a taxable account, and then on the bonds, kind of depending on the capacity, either in a qualified account or in a taxable account, will determine whether you own uh, municipals or if you own taxable bonds in a taxable account. And then we'll go a step further. Some of the individuals we work with may not be subject to federal tax, but might be subject, uh, their highest tax liability might be a state income tax, mm. in which case you might want to own uh, U.S. treasuries or U.S. government debt that would be exempt from taxation uh, at the state level. And so you, in essence, get kind of a double tax free without having to own a municipal bond. Yeah. And so, you know, in addition to Andrew adding a ton of value to clients through, you know, some tax planning strategies, um, which just discussed, Andrew's actually also written some papers on, you know, portfolio construction and more, I would say, on the, um, the withdrawal rates, right? Correct. And so do you mind maybe just giving us a high level summary of kind of, you wrote, there's two papers up on SSRN, one was published, correct? Correct. Yeah. And, and the in... Journal of Financial Planning, yep. I forget exactly when it was, which is sad because it's yeah. like, you know, like no, but framed it, up on my wall. But it is a very good article, again, in the Journal of Financial Planning. So for all advisors really should be, you know, possibly reading this, to be quite honest, uh, we read it. I was intrigued and really liked it. So can you give us a high level summary of that paper and kind of sure. what your thoughts are? Sure. So um, withdrawal rates kind of sit at the intersection of portfolio construction and financial planning. Um, so kind of the standard is you take a look at a 30 year horizon and say, how much can I draw out of my portfolio initially? Adjust the dollar amount each year for inflation. And they kind of take that back to a percentage of the starting portfolio. So that's kind of the 4% rule. Yeah. And, and just you know, withdrawal rates are if you're you're living off your portfolio and drawing down like four or five percent annually. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Just so uh, his, everyone's on the same yep. page. Yep. Um, so uh, that assumes a 50-50 portfolio. So 50% stocks and 50% bonds. Well, kind of some of the issues we run into now are um, 
really low real interest rates. So historically, real rates on bonds, one and a half, two percent, at least in the U.S., yep. uh, a little closer to zero percent now, um, kind of on the, the five-year like tips. tips. Yeah. Yep. So really half of the portfolio now doesn't have a real return. So the issue is how can we construct a portfolio that gets the real return closer to the historical average real return without really affecting the volatility level of the portfolio? Because yep. if you think about it, you change the, the volatility level, your answer on the withdrawal rate is going to change. Yep. So in the paper that was published, I took a look at how can you construct a portfolio with less bonds, but still keep that volatility level the same. And you turn to kind of defensive or low beta or kind of minimum variant stocks. Okay. And the blend is about 70% of those and about 30% bonds gets to about that same 10%, 11% volatility level. 70% what? Uh, low volatility, um, low beta, it kind of depends on how you define it. Okay. Um, I think in the paper, it was technically a minimum variance. So you make some assumptions about volatility yep. and the correlation structure. But uh, as you put that together, what you see is um, volatility level stays the same, stock market beta um, of the whole portfolio stays about the same, but withdrawal rates go up by about half a percent. So instead of historically four, you get about four and a half percent. Okay. Which doesn't sound like much, but if you think about a million-dollar portfolio, you're talking about $5,000 difference per year for the entire length of your retirement. It would be a pretty material improvement to somebody's standard of living. I would agree. Um, so from a risk perspective, it looks the same. Um, but given today's environment, it might be something to consider as a tool in your toolkit to help somebody uh, either retire when they want to, retire early, uh, make retirement last a little longer, perhaps get rid of some longevity risk uh, in somebody's portfolio. All right. And, and so, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you also have another paper talking about, you know, improving withdrawal rates with managed futures, correct? Yes. Um, so, so what's in, that's a working paper? Yes. Or? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's also up on SSRN. Yeah. And so um, it's a similar approach, but as opposed to using maybe low beta stocks, right? Exactly. You're using managed futures. Exactly. Um, so this paper takes a look at a portfolio of 50% stocks, 40% bonds, and 10% managed futures. Mm -hmm. um, I use managed futures just because it's probably the best known um, kind of alternative strategy, and it has a lot of data uh, behind yep. it. So it's pretty easy to, to pull up the statistics and, and model it out. Um, so what this shows was um, kind of the same issue. How do we still protect the portfolio without changing the risk level, but decrease the reliance of the portfolios um, on real return from bonds? So we're just taking a sliver away from the bond portfolio. And you get very similar results. Uh, so a 10% allocation to managed futures historically improves withdrawal rates by about half a percent to three quarters of a percent, kind of depending on the assumptions you want to use. Um, I took a look at some different scenarios. So I trimmed historical returns for managed futures so the results weren't as good. Um, and that was kind of about the half a percent improvement. Gotcha. And, and on that, so managed futures, there's a million definitions. What was the vol on the managed futures? Um, it was 10% uh, uh, volatility. 10%. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Which is just, you know, to the extent someone's thinking of, an advisor's thinking of doing that, they obviously need to understand. I think you would agree. Yes that there's va vastly different oh, products available yes. with vastly different volatilities. Yes. Um, so yeah, really important point. Um, so if you, you're going to own something that might be a 15% or a 20% vol, obviously you could decrease the allocation to that and still kind of get the same bang uh, in the portfolio. But yeah, great point. Yeah. And so uh, I'll, I'll end on maybe one other question, which is, and it kind of goes in, uh, with the managed futures, but really the diversifying bucket. So, you know, a lot of times advisors have their stocks and their bonds, right? Mm -hmm. And the bonds are supposed to be diversifying to the stocks, mm -hmm. right? Um, now, you've also done some research, not only in the managed futures, but you've shown that possibly in the future, bonds may not have the same type of, you know, I would say positive returns in potential periods Sure. when equities do poorly. Do you mind just talking about that? Sure. So um, a couple of blog posts, I think up on the, the website, people wanted to Google it. Um, it takes a look at crisis alpha periods. So we take history and we basically say, hey, we just want to look at the periods of time where stocks maybe had like a negative 5% return for that month. Mm -hmm. And then take a look at um, the return for bonds. But what we're going to do is instead of just looking at the return of bonds, we're going to strip out 
um, into a couple different components. We're gonna take out the return of cash. So we're really gonna look at just what it was the term premium on bonds. So the return above cash for taking yeah. a little longer duration. Can you maybe risk. explain that sure. to people? So um, bond returns are can be thought of as really two components. So you have the, re the risk-free return on cash. Which is like Fed funds or exactly. what your th one three-month T-bill would Yeah, I, I think uh, in the data for that blog post, it was three-month uh, T-bill yep. returns. So today, that would be um, like two and a two, quarter. Yeah. Two, two and a quarter. Okay. Um, and then there is a component above that that is the return premium or interest rate risk premium. That's the extra return you get for going out further on the yield curve. Taking duration risk. Exactly. So we really just want to study what is the duration risk because you, you could own cash. Um, it's a choice. Yep. Um, so as we took a look at the term premium, um, it was mildly positive, but I think it was only maybe 12 basis points a month um, positive. Uh, on average. On average in those crisis periods. So I dug a little further and said, well, let's break that return into two components, the income return or coupon return during those months and the price return of bonds in yeah. that month. And so just let's, let me just back it up, make sure I'm doing the math correct. So today, if you had a 10, uh, 10 year treasury, it's 3%. Mm -hmm. We take out the two. Correct. That's risk free. So now we're going to examine that 1% and now break that Correct. Into Correct. what's the actual income and what's the price return in a month where equities go down. Exactly. Okay. Um, and so what we find is all of the positive crisis alpha is actually due to the income component return. Interesting. That the price return um, for bonds on average historically uh, in those crisis alpha months was actually negative. Wow. So the takeaway from this is um, bonds diversification role in crisis alpha months is really dependent on a couple of factors. Um, one is kind of what's the coupon. So the higher the coupon, the higher the benefit you would expect on average to receive from, from bonds. Your bond portfolio. Yep. Um, and the other that you can kind of delve into if you want is uh, that there is a common risk factor between bonds and stocks, and that is unexpected inflation. So if you take a look at the time series of the price return on bonds, um, they're kind of that negative return is really due to what happens uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, as we got some kind of unexpected inflation shocks. Yep. And both bonds and stocks did poorly. Yeah. Um, so they can kind of get into some of the benefits from including other asset classes, other uncorrelated investment strategies, just trying to look outside of pure bonds for diversification benefit of portfolios. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, uh, I think anyone should, it's probably worthwhile to read uh, both of your articles, I think we have two, mm -hmm. about bonds and in crisis periods, just because, you know, for a lot of advisors, if you started, you know, in the mid 80s to today, almost every single time there's been an equity drawdown, bonds did very well. Mm -hmm. And what you highlight, I think, uh, in those articles um, is that potentially that's not the case all the time. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, just kind of caveat emptor. Yeah. And so... Uh, I'll leave it there. So, Andrew, thanks for coming on. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And uh, have fun on the march. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Jack. All right. Okay. So, so our our second paper this week uh, was uh, by Dr. Jack Vogel here, our CIO at Alpha Architect. Get it right. Um, so it was titled "Value and Momentum and Risk." Uh, now, sometimes we publish papers on our site that are uh, for a more broad audience. Uh, sometimes we publish papers that are super deep geek, and this post definitely falls in the latter. This is really, really deep. Um, but Jack, we've written extensively on our site about value and momentum. What does this paper bring about that's new? Yeah, so the, the origin of this paper was um actually it was a good question that uh corey had asked me on a podcast which was kind of you know within um in the question that corey asked was what is the um risk-based explanation for momentum right and so on the podcast in my head i i know i was attempting to tie to there's a paper about momentum and crash risk 
and I don't think I adequately answered that question. So I wanted to follow up and kind of like dive into more details as to what is the explanation, right? And so again, just to high level, you know, value and momentum, uh, everyone knows historically had premiums and the two competing explanations are that, are, <clears throat> are that they are driven by a risk-based explanation, i.e. you're taking on some sort of risk or behavior, right? And so for value, right, um, you know, you can kind of, a lot of people understand both the behavior aspect and the risk aspect. Um, and, and then from and that is to hit, just hit it real quick. What it, the, the simple value. Yeah. So, so the value, you know, the behavioral risk is obviously that you are, um, overreacting to news. Yep. Right. Um, and then the risk, a you know, common explanation is like the stress you're buying like firms that are cheap. And, they're right? gonna go to zero, and they could go to zero, right? So they're cheap for a reason. Yeah. So, but now when you get to momentum, right, the behavioral explanation, and there's a lot of papers we've outlined on the article, is there's an underreaction to information, i.e. good news comes out, people underreact to that, or bad news comes out, people underreact, right? Yeah. But so then what's the risk, right? And so I was trying to tie to the crash risk, and I don't think I adequately did it, so I wanted to dive in a little bit more detail, and that's kind of the genesis of the article. Got it. Um, so then you, you say toward, towards the start of the paper, there is something unique about the momentum risk as there are high correlations, both in and across asset classes. Um, so there you say there is something unique about the momentum risk as there are high correlations, both in and across asset classes. Why is that unique? Yeah. And again, um, I'm not saying that that was okay. as is Moskowitz Peterson, that's <laughs> verbatim from their paper. So these guys found it, um, and highlighted, and it was a great, uh, study that they did, which looked at, you know, returns to, I believe it was, um, 48 return series. I, I could have that wrong. Um, I think it was eight asset classes where they then broke it down into across the globe. Yeah, eight so asset classes commodities. across the globe. So U.S. stocks, international Bonds, stocks, yeah. equity futures, bonds, currencies, commodities, etc. And they broke them down into, so of the eight, into six portfolios, right? So they basically took, you know, three on value. They split each of the universes into cheap, middle, expensive, and then low momentum, middle, high momentum, right? And what they found was really cool was that uh, across both it, within each asset class, value and momentum were negatively correlated. But then not only that, it was across asset classes, mm -hmm. right? And, they, and then they even found that the value portfolios were positively correlated across asset classes, it had a high you know, correlation structure, and momentum portfolios were. So there's something about momentum where it's, it has this high correlation within and even across random asset classes. And historically, what that would, you know, going back to like Fama French is if you had such a finding that was evidence of some sort of a risk premium. So, okay. Uh, okay. And so, so then we go into, then you get really into the meteor post um, by talking about a paper called a global macroeconomic risk model for value, momentum, and other asset classes. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so now we're getting into macroeconomic risk models. Uh, what, what's the setup of this paper? And then we'll kind of get into those details. Yeah. So kind of a, an interesting thing. I always found this interesting is, you know, like, so, so we go back and I say, Hey, they have this high correlation structure, right? Their returns can be explained by the betas, right? That's kind of what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means that there's some risk factor. Like there's a risk embedded in value, there's a risk embedded in size, momentum, etc. But we actually don't say what the risk is, right? Like yeah. a lot of times in a lot of studies, there there's hundreds of studies that attempt to do this, but there's no like definitive answer. And so what this paper tried to do was say, hey, did, like the Asnos Monskowitz Peterson paper found this really cool finding that value momentum, there's some risk both in and across. And they're like, hey, can we try to tie this to some sort of macroeconomic risk and also try to figure out, hey, or try to square with the fact that, you know, value and momentum are negatively correlated, yet their combination is positive, right? So what that means is like value must be loading, you know, one way on some factor and momentum must be loading the opposite way on the exact same macroeconomic risk factor. And so what they do, papers, 
there's a little bit of details on how they test it. But what they try to do is they say, hey, we're going to use five macroeconomic risks. Which are, so, so I have them here. So the five macroeconomic risks that they tested on, uh, industrial production growth, unexpected inflation, change in the expected inflation, term spread, and default spread. And, and this is, to me, kind of interesting macroeconomic because it, it kind of makes it a little more tangible, right? You're, you're like tying it to real world things that people can kind of see. Um, so, okay, so that's, so those are the five macroeconomic factors they, they added, uh, loaded on. Yeah, and so what they find is, not surprisingly, since we know value momentum returns, right, the, the time series returns are negatively correlated. What they find is actually these value momentum portfolios load negatively, or they, sorry, they load oppositely on each uh, of the macroeconomic risks. So if you go in on the blog post, I have the charts. It's pretty cool. You see like, you know, value, I think value is negatively related on four of the five, but momentum is positive. And then they show, so, so the, the main finding is, yes, even, even though value and momentum are negative in the time series of returns, on macroeconomic risks, they actually still load oppositely, which is pretty neat. And, and so w would it be correct to, let's just take one that's uh, pretty easy to understand, change in expected inflation, right? Everybody can kind of understand that. Um, would it be as simple as to say in this study, the change in inflect, inspected inflation is higher than we expected, right? And then therefore either value or momentum goes up and, and value or momentum, the opposite thing goes down. Yeah, yeah. So what, I mean, what they found was that I believe on that one, like momentum loaded positively, yep. right? And, and value loaded negatively. Which, which is intuitive. Yeah, which yeah. is intuitive. And then they find at a high level that the, um, the combinations still have a positive premium. Yeah. So. Yeah, right. And um, but so that kind of was the next question. So the the while never really correlated, and you've already hit on it a couple of times, but they can have a combined positive premium. So so we're taking two things that are uncorrelated. When we put them together, they have a positive premium. Do we do they go into why that is? Uh, I I believe they attempt to. Um, it's not definitive. Right. It is what I would say. Yeah. Um. And what I'd say, though, is a, a very interesting part of the blog post, um, which I can't take any credit for. There's a uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting for anyone who wants to dive more into like learning about findings and actually just how academic research works. So this paper, if you read it, it sounds like pretty definitive, looks good. Right. But, you know, the whole academic finance community and really hopefully all academic communities are like this, where, you know, someone presents a, a finding in a paper yeah. and then you have what's called a discussion. So at the end of the article, I, I post a link to a video where Nick Rusinov, uh, he's a professor at Penn, does a discussion on this paper. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and uh, an interesting thing that happens in academic finance and other, uh, hopefully other, all, all fields of academia is we don't just take your finding for granted. We want to make sure it's correct or we want to see if there's ways we can improve the paper. What he does is he kind of questions some of the findings, right? Um, but the, the, all of his points, I'd say, will help the future version of the paper. But the most interesting one was that he actually replicated their results and then created five new random macroeconomic risk factors, which are all kind of reasonable, like, yeah. like bank loans and, you know, uh, housing starts, right? Things where you can be like, oh, these are macroeconomic events. Talking about and he starts, finds yeah. like kind of similar things. So what I'd say is that although, which is cool because he, I think he still finds like the positive negative loading, yeah. right? But I, the big, my big picture takeaway from that was that while those are the five macro macroeconomic variables that the authors use, yeah. they're probably not the perfect ones. And honestly, there probably is no perfect, yeah. right? So I'd recommend anyone who's real interested to watch the video, especially when Nick starts talking. I think it's around like the 40 minute mark. But, but could, could you say in a sense that almost makes it more robust? Like you, he goes out and pulls some yeah. other random factors and they also show similar results or, does, or no, that doesn't make it more robust. All I'd say is that it highlights that trying to figure out what are the optimal macroeconomic risks is yeah. probably a difficult question to <laughs> get a definitive answer on. Okay.
Great. Yeah. So that that's Jack's paper for this week. Like I said, this is some super deep geek stuff that Jack wrote about. Um, so if you if you want to, to read more about it, go to the site because you can go a whole lot deeper. Um, all right. Thanks, Jack. All right. Perfect. All right. So so we're starting off. This is our weekly uh, Alpha Architect research summary. This week we're pretty lucky because uh, due to the March for the Fallen, we have a lot of the actual authors in the office today. We have Elisabetta here. She wrote the first research paper this week, uh, research summary. Um, so the title of the paper was, uh, well, and I guess to take one step back, we'll be going through three papers this week. First one's going to be on gender bias. The second one's going to be on value and momentum. Pretty popular topic around here. Last one's going to be on cybersecurity. Um, so the first paper summarized by Elisabetta was Sex Matters, Gender Bias in the Mutual Fund Industry. Um, Elisabetta came all the way from... Milano. Milano, Italy. Milano, Italy. So she is the furthest traveler to the March for the Fallen, so we appreciate the uh, effort to continue the uh, uh, mission of education. So um, th this paper investigates the question, do investors care about the fund manager gender, and they look at it from two angles, uh, a rational and an irrational explanation. The rational explanation they examined was, do investors discriminate based on performance evidence, aka is, is one gender worse than the other, therefore it's pretty fair to, to discriminate? Um, and the irrational explanation is, do they manifest prejudice against female managers due to gender bias? Um, at Health Architect, we're big believers that humans are irrational. Uh, so I have a feeling I know where this is going. Uh, but what did the results say, Elizabeth? Yes, so as you said, this was a very unique paper uh, because it uh, was uh, investigating a potential uh, different reason for the underrepresentation of women in finance. It's, you know, a lot talks about uh, career discrimination, self-selection biases, but this is looking at the, at the customer. And as you uh, pointed out, um, it isn't for a rational reason. It isn't for performance reason, because uh, this paper, like other paper, papers in the research show that uh, female um, employees in different areas of finance and investments perform at least as well as their male colleagues. Yeah. So it's not a rational um, yeah. reason. It's, it's for rational um, uh, reasons. And um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so, so it is, it was not driven by the rational reason. It seems uh, uh, female uh, fund managers perform at least as well as male uh, fund managers. It was driven by the irrational reason. Um, but the authors, uh, let's see, where did I put that? The authors did hypothesize that the custom, that, that the mm -hmm. discrimination, instead of it being driven by the fund companies themselves, could be driven actually by the customers. Exactly. Could, could you ex mm -hmm. uh, explain yes, that so a little bit? What they did, they did an experiment uh, in the lab. Um, this paper, by the way, was published in, man in the Management Science Journal, so it's not a typical finance journal. And uh, the authors did this experiment where the participant um, uh, had to do this exercise. They were given money, and they needed to allocate money to uh, they split the money into two funds, index funds, by the way, so that alpha was not a component, really. The only difference between the two index funds that they were uh, given was the name of the um, fund manager. So they could actually very uh, easily understand whether it was a, a female or a male. And uh, as you anticipated, not surprisingly, uh, there, there seems to be discrimination because especially the male investor allocated more money towards the male fund manager compared to the female fund managers. They actually did a second experiment. Um, they use a specific... Well, the, the, what would be interesting there before we get to that? What did female investors... Right, uh, so, you make so a good point. Just to be clear on that, so the study showed male investors allocated more to the male-driven fund in this experiment. Uh, and then, so now I'm asking what 
what did female investors allocate to more, the male fund manager or the female fund manager in this hypothetical experiment? Well, surprisingly or not so surprisingly, from my point of view, the female didn't discriminate. Didn't discriminate. Okay. So there wasn't any statistically different uh, allocation uh, to the two index funds based on the name of the fund managers. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so males are biased, females are much more rational. Got it. Yeah, and then they did a second experiment, uh, one using this specific technique that's used in, uh, you know, social psychology. It's called the Implicit Association Test, IAT, uh, and it's a test where they do association with word, different words to identify if there is prejudice, and uh, unfortunately they did um, discover that uh, there is some prejudice against female in, in finance. And um, and so, I just want to add uh, a quick comment. Um, you know, here at, at Alpha Architect, we also have a series. It's called Women in Finance Know Stuff, and periodically we feature some uh, some female that have. Uh, are successful and are doing interesting things in the field. And you know, it's funny how uh, we have been interviewed a, a few so far, and um, I do comparison between what the research is saying and what they are telling me. And I find very, a lot of parallels. I, I find a lot of evidence. And in this regards, um, I was interviewing. Um, a lady who's actually here, Perth, uh, Perth and the interview will be, be featured um, probably next month. But she was telling me that in her experience, she was a financial advisor. In her experience, she did um, evidence on some of this uh, uh, discrimination. And to go a step further, she was telling me that she was working at Fidelity both in um, California and Texas. and. It seems like there could be also some geographical, uh, you know, discrimination. So it's more conservative states versus more progressive state, and also age. So there could be some potential for the research to be done and to investigate this gender bias. Are you going to do the research for us? <laughs> I'm tempted. You, know, tempted. <laughs> you are writing a book, though. Right. Or have you yeah. written it? No, we, we are still in the process of writing it. So yeah, and we have we do have a chapter on this uh, topic. So I may, if I'm able to add some um, some further investigation. Okay, great. All right. Well, yeah. So so that's the paper. High level. Humans are irrational. Males are irrational, especially. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So yeah. So so thanks for your time, Elizabeth. Sure. And, My pleasure. So this is our third paper for the week, and we have Brandon Kepke and Patrick Cleary, uh, both employees of Alpha Architect. Um, Pat's our COO, uh, Harvard Business School graduate, pretty smart, and then uh, but is also getting his uh, uh, a master's in cybersecurity. Brandon was a ex Amazon engineer, uh, so he's very uh, knowledgeable about cybersecurity as well. So they combined, they joined up to write a piece to hopefully help some advisors out there titled SEC Cybersecurity Requirements for Registered Investment Advisors. So a very sexy title. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great reading. <laughs> um, I mean, you really can't put it down uh, once, you, once you pick it up. It's just uh, fantastic stuff. Yeah, riveting. riveting. Yeah, riveting, yeah. really. Would be the very... Yeah. It is long, and it is thorough. Yes, <laughs> long and thorough. Yeah. Um, so so how, how can advisors use this paper? Sure. Besides, so, us, you know, to put in the fireplace? So, yeah, so I think uh, the, the main uh, piece of advice we give to advisors on cybersecurity is, is hire someone who used to work at Amazon that's, that's a good, yeah. Oh, you want okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. So Brandon is a is a cyber whiz. So I, I feel confident anything we put out has some good, uh, you know, is actually valid. Um, but I, I think the the main goal of the paper is to demystify cybersecurity, um, and we want to basically say, look, this is doable. You just have to have a little bit of discipline, use a little bit of common sense, get your arms dirty. Don't think you have to spend fifty thousand dollars on consultants. Um, outside help is okay, but it's it's basically well, you can spend you can spend a lot yeah. of money and not get very much. You can, exactly, yeah. this is good. 
Yeah. Let's keep that going. So, yeah. so what do you like? What do you mean? Like, so, so what? What should they? What should advisors be doing? Like, what's step one? I opened up my RA. I have this paper that you guys wrote in front of me. What do I do? I'm a brand. I'm brand new. I don't want to get all my data stolen or whatever hacked. So one one thing you could do, uh, I think the first thing before you do any before you before you touch anything is go to the NIST website, National Institute of Standards and Technology, and read what the guidance is. You know, everyone says like cybersecurity. Uh, cybersecurity is important. How's your cybersecurity? It's kind of like. Well, what what are we talking about? Yeah, what's you know, so go to go to NIST, read the framework. It's linked in the post, and just understand. Okay, this is what they're talking about, and NIST is basically this branch of the government that's funded that just says, let's get the best and brightest minds from across the country to write out what the standards are. It's kind of like the rule book. Like before you play the game, understand the rules of the game. So I'd say first step is is go to NIST. Okay, and generally NIST is. Does that tell you what to do or what's that give you? So what NIST gives you is it gives you the basic guidance. So securing your data, doing risk assessments. How to do it? It doesn't tell you the how. That's the goal of this post. The goal of the post is, is like, this is what NIST says. Now let's go to somebody really smart who actually knows what they're talking about. And then confirm, okay, how can we do this in like a simple, easy, low cost way? Like data encryption. How do I encrypt my hard drive? Well. Windows has BitLocker on it. You know, here's a link that shows you how to encrypt your hard drive if you're using Windows 10. Yeah. You know, things like that. So is the so is this post is it is it a it's a step by step guideline? Like, can if I'm an advisor, can I read this post and by the end of it feel pretty confident that I have a robust cybersecurity? Or is this like this will get you started and then there's a little. Well, more. I think if you follow everything in the post and if you hit every point in the NIST guidelines you're gonna have a pretty good a pretty good plan okay um, and that's that's really honestly all, all you can do yeah. it's like a best effort um, you know try to do the best you can like a real advanced like persistent threat someone who's trying to get into your firm for some reason like specifically targeting you um, that's there really is no good defense against that mm -hmm. um, but uh, to get 90% of these, like most of the, the real attacks that people get hit by are just like drive-bys and someone's like literally left the keys in the door. Um, what do you like? What like tangibly? What do you mean by that? Like somebody just well, had like a you've got like a, or... a misconfigured server or you've got out-of-date software. Like those are probably the two biggest things. Right. Like you're running a WordPress site and you haven't updated it in 10 years. Okay. Even the big companies um, do that. When they get hacked, it tends to be that someone forgot about a server that was running somewhere and someone gets into that and then from there they move throughout the organization. Got it. So actually f for RIAs and, and for us, it's actually like a huge benefit uh, that we're a smaller firm in terms of like number of employees. We just don't have a big um, attack surface. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So e easier to protect yourself because you're small, you only have one server or whatever to worry about. Well, and there's fewer, um, the weakest link a lot of times is the, is the people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to convince someone to give you the keys than it is to hack the server. Got it. And that's like, that's examples of that is like phishing scams, right? Like somebody sends you well, an email or... And that's the thing, like I, I actually sent an email uh, last night. Um, that's like an invite to this uh, Microsoft service. And um, uh, Jack, one of our other employees, um, sent me an email about like, hey, is this intentional? Uh, because it would actually be pretty easy to forge an email like that um, and, and so get someone's credentials. Make, make the that. email look like it's coming from you and it's not actually, and it goes to Jack and Jack. Yeah, well, like my, my email is, is public. It's on the site and Jack, Jack's is, is public. It'd be pretty easy assumption to me like hey if the technology guy sends an email people are probably going to click on it yeah um so it's pretty good on jack for, for asking about that so then how's this paper broken down what are like what are the major sections so what we tried to do was nist comes out with this monster framework that's really intimidating and so we try and i, I we literally put in the post 
follow this post step by step through the NIST framework. So it's organized by the NIST framework. So okay, you know, get six cups of coffee, take some Adderall, uh, drink some Red Bulls, get through section one. Um, what section one? Section section one is is on identification of your assets. So once you know the rule book, then you got to understand. Okay, what do I actually need to protect? This is a classic mistake advisors make. They say, okay, well I've got four machines in our office and I've got a router, so that's my network. Yeah. And then you ask him, do you work from home? Like, oh yeah, I work from home. And do you check your email from your on your mobile? Oh yeah, we have we have ten mobile phones. Yeah. And then oh, I've got a North Korean girlfriend that uh, I, I share all of our data <laughs> yeah. with. You're like, wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a fake example. Yeah. But <laughs> that'll get you though. That, that'll time. get you. Yeah. On, and this time. framework does not cover North Korean <laughs> significant others yeah. that want uh, copies of all your data. Yeah. But don't trust them. But so <laughs> that's that's the identify section is just understanding how do you like what do you need to protect and one of the interesting sec requirements are is they want to see a network map that you look at and that you draw out that outlines and i'm like you've got to be kidding me you want me to sit down in powerpoint and draw out a network map of all these things but then i realize there's a brilliance to that request that is a forcing function to force advisors to sit down and actually think about where are their assets because when you actually think about it you realize you have a lot more there's a lot more devices and machines than you would at first initially expect and that's what you have to protect so assess assess what you have assess yeah. that's kind of step one yeah what read do the I guidelines have? and then you gotta assess what you have exactly. step two or part two of the post or whatever you want to yeah, call it. So part two is protect. So this is just the basics of, you know, encryption, you know, encryption at rest and encryption in transit. Um, this is where, uh, you know, Brandon's expertise really comes to fore. I'm like, here's some simple things you can do. Um, don't freak out and hear encryption. I need to hire a consultant. You can, there's, there's free, uh, there's free open source out there. There's also stuff embedded in Windows. Yeah. Things, things like that. Well, so, mo most yeah. uh, like your phone will most likely be encrypted um, automatically now, anyway. Okay. Especially if you've got a PIN set. Got it. And so, yeah, so that's like one example of just give like one example of something easy to do in that step that that protects you, like something you outlined in that post. Or... Well. Um, two-factor authentication. Yeah, two-factor two, authentication. Two authentication is one. So you want to have, for your email, for all your emails, you want to have a login to the email, obviously, like your password, like you always do, and then you also want to have it every time you log in from a new device, you get a text message on your phone, right? Well, actually, I, ideally, it's... Um, See? It's That's why I'm not a <laughs> cybersecurity expert. This is ideally, it's not SMS. Ideally, okay. it's... Uh, there's. Uh, like Google Authenticator, there's a whole bunch of tools that, that can handle it. Got it. Um, but you want to generate one-time codes, and you want to be able to do it, ideally, from your mobile. Got it. Okay. Um, so that was part two. Part one, here's assess. Part two, easy guidelines, easy solutions. Part three is uh, monitor. monitor. So now it's like, okay, so you've got the rule book. You've built the uh, you built the castle, so to speak. You built the fortress, and now you have to kind of post sentries at the at the gates and on the towers to make sure nothing's coming in. So these are um, these are some simple things you can do. And we and we state in the post very clearly: Hey, not everybody is going to be able to monitor network logs and look into computer code if you're a layperson or an idiot. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. But there's things, as Brandon's mentioning, you can have. Network alerts. What are some of the common like network alerts a layperson could deploy to kind of be aware when people are logging in or like, accessing? Uh, like your like your local network? Yeah, or just like on Gmail or. Oh, um, well, actually, you'll you'll probably just get those automatically. Yeah, um, like yeah you email. don't really have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah, but, but that's an example. Like, so on Gmail, if anytime you log in from a new device, you get an email that says, "Hey, alert! Well, somebody and logged th in." That's a really nice thing that Google has done. Is like, right. if, like I get an email. It's just like it with your bank. Yeah. They're like banks do it. They disable your credit card when you. Uh, they're like, "What is Brandon doing in Arizona?" Like, well, yeah. Enjoying the sun. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But it could have been someone else. Yeah. yeah. So that's alert. Credit card companies do and. Your well, email um, often e automatically yeah, email, does it. Email a lot of time will do the same thing. And then, so we want to do things like that though too. Um, that makes sense. Okay. And what? So was there? That was third. Now, was there so a fourth? The, yeah. Then you have respond, and we kind of group these together: respond and recover. 
the SEC really wants to see drawn out incident response plans, business continuity plans, and disaster recovery plans. Notice, folks, there's three components there, not just one. And so they're going to want to see in your policies and procedures, if you get hacked, what happens? What's the checklist of things you're going to do? Right? Just to Brandon's point, if somebody really, really wants to hack you, like, they will. Yeah. So, like, all these rules basically will protect you from the 90%. Right, but so well, now somebody had ninety nine. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, whatever. But hopefully now somebody did hack you. Yeah, it's possible. Even yeah. if you did everything right. And let's broaden the definition of hack. So to Brandon's point, you're probably not going to get. You know, the, Iran is not really going to care about tiddlywink advisor in in, in uh, Baton Rouge, right? But where what may happen is maybe you have a disgruntled employee that you didn't take off the access roster that wants to get that client data to start his or her own practice. That's that's also a hack in a way. So that your incident response plan should cover that. So what do you need to do? You know, make sure the team is trained on what to do. And it could be very simple as turn off your routers in your network to make sure messages don't go outside. Go through the access roster and make sure, you know, those who have access are the only ones who should have access, yeah. things like that. And then also there's a legal component to this. So if you have client information that gets stolen, Unfortunately, every state has its own standards of notification periods and things like that. You have to basically be able to um, follow those standards. So it's, it, I, I make a special reference in that part of the post to now's a good time to invest a little bit of money with a lawyer to basically say, hey, do you know what to do? If we have clients whose data gets breached in all 50 states, do you know what those rules are? If we get breached, we want to incorporate you into our business, into our incident response plan. So that that's that's the part where you do have to kind of pay the piper there, but um, it's important. Yeah. Okay. And was there a f now? So now we responded. Is there more? Is there? Is there a well, then you have the recover, which is kind of I, I looped it together because yeah. it was a twenty-five page blog post, and I wanted to kill myself at the end of, of writing it with Brandon here. So the uh, the recover piece is just. How do you get back to normal state operations again? So you, if you've been compromised, what do you need to do to kind of get back up there? So. And if, if you're being attacked, you should just smash your computer to stop. <laughs> well, that might help. But, yeah. but it depends. If they broke into your email, smashing your laptop is not going to help. Okay. Uh, <laughs> panic and smash your computer doesn't normally work. Uh, except in rare cases, got it. But my, my North Korean girlfriend assures me that nothing is wrong and just <laughs> yeah. keep operating as usual. Just yeah. And all okay. these laptop crashes are just this is normal. Just normal cost of doing business. Yeah. And, uh, I'm grateful for her. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we could. We're yeah. Outside Alpha Architect, we're grateful for that as well. Yeah. Um, okay, so do we do we hit everything, or is there more? Do we need to conclude on, or like? What do we leave these guys with? Well, girls? something I think I, I wouldn't mind uh, like emphasizing a bit is um, like which which threats you're actually concerned about. Because for, for us, when we sat down and and really dug into it, my my initial concern was what if someone gets in and they can get at the assets. Uh, but if you think like about when you mean the assets now, because we're in finance, do you mean? I mean, like assets? the financial assets. Like okay. that was my biggest concern. Like, what if they get in? But we have all this other reporting and so much stuff that's being handled um, by other parties, like the broker. Yeah. I mean, if something does happen, we're going to notice. And not only that, there's all kinds of um, insurance that kicks in, and and the you know who's liable is is so the chances of someone actually doing that and that actually happening and us not noticing are pretty much zero yeah. so like our real concern then is someone getting uh, client information like client data um, and uh, so we've basically just worked on making sure that the client data is more locked down yeah. and I mean that, that that's what I would really be want to emphasize the most is that, well, what's what's the real concern what's the real disaster scenario yeah um, mitigating that right yeah so yeah so yeah fi figure like that's a good spot to kind of start figure out what's your most precious or valuable things that you're trying to protect which could be the actual assets the trading assets or uh, to your point client data that's what Okay. Do we have time for one more? Yeah. I, don't want to, yeah. So I think one, one, one key trend of the post that I think people should be aware of is, is this sucks. And I think the biggest risk of any small financial advisory firm are your fellow coworkers. 
I'm not worried about getting hacked by the Russians or the Iran or Hezbollah, you know, carting off our data. I'm worried about Chuck turning off his Windows updates because he wants to play solitaire and it slows down his machine. I mean, those are the kind of things like your employee, your your your, your team partners, your your colleagues can be your biggest nemesis. And this is where, like, you kind of have to exercise some, you know, dichotomy of leadership here and say, okay, how do I coax, you know. Coach, say, educate, my name, yeah. yell at, right. scream, yeah. uh, convince your employees to not only follow the policy, but embrace and kind of take on this combat mindset. Because as we said in the Marine Corps, complacency kills. Yeah. And to me, the biggest cyber threat is not, like I said, external factors. It's people getting complacent, not paying attention, installing something they weren't supposed to. We miss an alert. That's, that's to me, the biggest threat. So basically, uh, don't trust any of your coworkers. Never. Never. Got it. All right. So don't trust anyone. That's going to round us out for this week. Uh, all right. And we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next week. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC, all rights reserved.